two books in and I'm starting to see why they got thrown out by the Protestants. All of them. All the books. Baruch 6 is different. It's known also as the Epistle of Jeremiah, and that's why my tape is named the Epistle of Jeremiah instead of Baruch 6. This chapter doesn't have any references in the New Testament, so we can skip that portion of the discussion when I get to the conclusion. Anyways, I've read through the text and wanted to comment on a few things, and then I'll deliver my verdict. No need to wait on my next entry. I've already drawn a conclusion. Baruch 6, 2 through 6. Because of the sins which ye have committed before God, ye shall be led away captives unto Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. So when ye come into Babylon, you shall remain there many years, and for a long season, namely seven generations. And after that I will bring you away peaceably from thence. Now shall ye see in Babylon gods of silver and of gold, and of wood, borne upon shoulders, which cause the nations to fear. Beware, therefore, that ye in no wise be like to strangers, neither be ye of them. When you see the multitude before them and behind them worshiping them. But say in your hearts, O Lord, we must worship thee, for mine angel is with you, and I myself caring for your souls. Today, we live in an age where we're surrounded by sin. If we were in an insular culture, much like what Jerusalem was supposed to be, adhering to God's laws, it'd be a great deal easier for us to abide by those rules. Of course, they'd have to be more insular. Obviously, it didn't always work out. So I don't know if this letter should be considered canon. I'm just starting in on it, at least when I wrote this, I did as I did with everything else. Well, what I do know is that in this portion of the passage, there's a lot of truth for Christians in America. Fundamental Christians in America, and even what I've seen of Australia and the UK, basically Christians of the West altogether, often try to impose their values upon their politics. But specifically, Americans do this to American politics. Things that come to mind are wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade, insisting that Christian prayer becomes commonplace in politics, that our nation's leader has to be Christian, and even then, only if they happen to agree with the particular set of Christian beliefs that that person holds, that same-sex education shouldn't be part of the school system, and the list just keeps going on and on and on. Just because America has a large population of identifying Christians doesn't mean America itself is a Christian nation. In fact, a founding father who may or may not have been Christian made that abundantly clear in his letter to the Danbury Baptist, which is where we get the term separation of church and state. The exact wording he used was believe, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes an account to none other than for his faith or his worship. Jefferson, 1802. Just as, I, just as it was in early Christianity and for the Jewish people during the Babylonian exile, we live amongst people that are not of Christian origin. And they commit all kinds of sin that God's against. It's not hard for us to find evidence of violations 
against each of the Ten Commandments in our society. And at least two that I can think of off the top of my head are considered completely acceptable by many Christians. That is, the biblical definition of adultery and coveting your neighbor's stuff. It's just what it is. From the onset, though, this letter seeks to remind the captives that they will be amongst non-believers. But that doesn't give them an excuse to violate the law themselves. This isn't much different from what Paul says in Romans 13, 1 through 2. God is the one who has put it there. There is no government anywhere that God has not placed in power. So those who refuse to obey the law of the land are refusing to obey God, and punishment will follow. Now think about the implications here. God allowed the governments to pursue those things which even he considers sinful. So what right do we have to force Christian doctrine, which isn't even completely agreed upon across the board? For example, many Christians support our LGBT brothers and sisters. And there are even, poor, uh, even pro-abortion Christians, believing that the Bible does not condemn them, over an eclectic approach that best suits the population. Why, why are we imposing these? So the argument for that might be God is notorious for mass punishment. Well, yeah, in the Old Testament, but there isn't actually a legitimate example of him delivering mass punishment in the New Testament, unless you count Revelation, which either has or has not come to pass, depending on what you believe. And I still don't have a, a, a formation on that particular topic. It's one thing I need to explore while I'm out here in in Sinai. So we'll see. Anyways, after, as we haven't had a recorded prophet go on record to illustrate God delivering mass punishment since Christ's resurrection, we're left with a strong lack of evidence supporting God's use of it. This passage, combined with the evidence in the New Testament, should make it pretty clear though, your sin is your sin. God will deliver his judgment when he decides to. Okay, I kind of went on a tangent there. But to circle back so I can just remember my point, be responsible for your own actions before God, and those around you are responsible for theirs. And do not mistake this truth. We will fall below God's standards. So what's the point in judging your neighbor? There isn't. Okay, so Baruch 6, 12 315. Ye cannot these gods, uh, yet cannot these gods save themselves from rust and moth, though they be covered with purple raiment. They wipe their faces because of the dust of the temples when there is much upon them. And he cannot put to death one that offendeth him, holdeth a scepter as though he were a judge of the country. He hath also in his right hand a dagger and an axe, but cannot deliver himself from war and thieves, whereby they are known not to be gods. Therefore, fear them not. Going to Baruch 6, 20 through 23. They are as one of the beams of the temple, yet they say their hearts are gnawed upon by things creeping out of the earth. And when they eat them, and their clothes, they feel it not. Their faces are blackened through the smoke that cometh out of the temple. Upon their bodies and heads sit bats, 
swallows and birds and cats also. But this ye may know that they are by this ye may know they are not gods. Therefore, fear them not. So, I don't know about the historical concept. I got to wonder if the practice described here is similar to what we see in some Catholic churches outside the United States or in the Hindu religion of India. Adornment of flowers, jewelry, and other offerings that are placed upon statues, idols, to show their outward love for the avatar the statue represents. Represents, not is, represents. If that's the case, then the author of this letter has misinterpreted what they are seeing. The point isn't that the avatar they represent will take care of the idol by which man uses for their worship, nor would man perceive the statues themselves as being the deity, but rather a representation by which they can illustrate their devotion to. Because people can be, are visual. We're visual. I don't know what else to say. We're visual. Anyways, the author of this letter clearly didn't believe that the gods of other nations had any real existence beyond the imagination of its followers. Or if he did, he sought to diminish them through this letter. It's not a bad strategy, but it only works as long as you can maintain an insular community. Once exposure gets out as the truth of the devotion, choices start getting made based upon the perception of differences between the deities and the devotional practices. So, case in point, a lot of people are moving towards spiritual models that embrace the concept of ritual and mystery in favor of the loose I-believe models. In fact, I'd say that it's because traditions which call upon a more mystical experience that we have word-of-faith ministries, people embracing Catholic models of devotion, and even a significant number of people leaving Christianity for pagan traditions. Christianity could pick up some ritualistic practices that are absolutely Abrahamic in nature by taking time to set up a space where they can sensibly contemplate God on a regular basis and pray. But it has to be set away from church in order for it to really take hold. Anyway, I mean, you could have one in church, but you'd have to keep it open 24 hours. And before I got locked up in this desert, uh, I couldn't really find many of those. And most of them were Catholic. <laughs> so there you have it. Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting point to make about the assumption of other religions, even the assumption that is made about us. Where I do take issue with Catholic Mariology and intercession of the, the saints, a topic I'll cover probably later, I can't ignore the lack of understanding of what we're looking at at the heart of addressing Mariology. I imagine it's the same with this passage. A lack of truly understanding what the Gentiles were engaging in was part of the reason it was so difficult to combat. Because once you start learning what they're actually doing, then the arguments from the people who didn't know what was going on seem to go away and they don't look like they know anything of what's really happening. Okay, anyways. But who am I to say that that would have worked? I, I mean, I, I guess that, I don't know, wouldn't it have worked? I, I think if I was writing this letter, I'd have probably put more focus on history of how previous prophets had proven God stood higher than any of the nation's gods. 
maybe made some points about how God is more virtuous by comparison and encouraged the captives to keep the scripture in their heart, maybe that wouldn't have worked either. I guess we all write in accordance with what sounds more convincing to us. Though, there's not really much point in talking about the rest of this chapter piece by piece. All the author really does is come up with ways to prove that the gods of the Chaldeans, uh, Chaldeans? I don't know how to say that, are not real. What's sad, however, is that the same things could be said of God today. If we believe the Bible, then what they saw of God versus the gods is no different than what the average person sees of God today. It's a really bad measuring stick. I guess in modern America, God isn't seen as withholding rain or, or giving it. We can explain these things through meteorologists. In modern America, there are plenty of people who do not show respect for God but claim to be Christian. In modern America, we can explain away how some people end up with money and how others do not. We don't see God dishing out what is modernly referred to as karma. We can explain how some people live and others die using science. Every proof Baruch 6 uses, or, or I guess the epistle of Jeremiah uses, is applicable to our experience of God today. And, hmm, maybe, no, I, I believe it. Baruch 6 has it wrong. I believe that the spiritual world is a lot more complicated than give this or give that. I also think that the epistle of Jeremiah may possibly be ignoring or unaware of the actual evidence that proves that the Chaldean gods aren't just the 3D images the author believes them to be. Much like the rest of the book, the five chapters before, Baruch 6 also known as the Epistle of Jeremiah, is an interesting study of how Jews understood the spiritual world when it was written, but I can't justify it as canon. Jerome of Stridon didn't consider this canon either, but included it at the insistence of Rome. Today, many scholars agree that there was no way this was written by Jeremiah, nor was it written during his lifetime. So verdict? Axe it. <sighs> Though maybe that's my pride talking. I guess this isn't that bad. Maybe it belongs in a collection of works that aren't necessarily canon, but can be insightful. It's just not useful for me. And I can't see it being useful for anyone I know, but does that mean that it's useless to everyone? I mean, what works for one person might not work for another. At least, you know, this epistle isn't outright speaking against biblical truths like Tobit did with its crazy fish organs. Okay, maybe not axe. Not, not axe. Not, don't take an axe to it. I, I guess it could be useful in a church library.